Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Cruise Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing cardiorespiratory examination. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. And uh, in this episode, we're now going to be having a look at cardiorespiratory examination. This is once again part of our early clinical experience series of podcasts. And so once again, Lucy uh, Harris, ACP extraordinaire and educator, has come to join me. Hello, Lucy. (laughs) Hi, Jamie. (laughs) Uh, So this is going along with our um, cardiac history taking podcast. And we're also going to be doing a video of yourself doing a cardiorespiratory examination. Um, This is a, a very common examination, a very important examination. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think once you've mastered the basics of this, you can. The world is your oyster. The world is your oyster. Um, but this is a fundamental that you need to get right from the beginning. Yeah. So um, it's quite key um, in having success in all your other examinations, really. Okay. Um, I I think you tend to use even the most basic of cardiorespiratory exams as a basis for all of your examinations yeah. anyway. Um, so um, it's a good as place to start as any. As Excellent. Right then, so how are we going to start then? We've got our patient in front of us, we've been asked to do a cardiorespiratory examination, so what are we going to do? Um, so um, as with any interaction with a patient or human being, I suppose, <laughs> that you would introduce yourself um, and explain sort of your ex- the examination process, so what part of you were going to examine. And so um, I think we have a tendency in exam uh, exam situations to say, I'm going to examine your cardiorespiratory system. When let's be honest, we would never say that to a patient. So say to the patient, I'm going to listen to your heart and lungs mm-hmm. um, and have a feel of your pulse today. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, so they have um, a layman's perspective of what we're going to do with them. Um, we're not even overwhelming them at the beginning with medical jargon already. Yeah. Um, and gain consent for that and ask them if it's okay um, and get them comfortable on the bed. Um, before you you, before you then proceed, I guess the most uh, one of the most important things to do is to generally have a general inspection of the patient in the bed or the chair, wherever they're sat really, um, within the consultation room, and just looking around for any signs of cardiorespiratory disease, um, such as things like sputum impulse inhalers, um, nebulizers, any oxygen that's in situ, um, if they're holding a GTN spray, um, if they're holding their chest, <laughs> um, uh, or any sort of walking aids that are nearby as well. Um, I guess you could then start looking around sort of if they if they if they have a commode nearby in the bed space mm. then you're thinking about exercise tolerance well they're not yeah. managing to get to the loo and and sort of taking all of that into context because it, it yeah. really does start from the beginning there doesn't it in, in terms of your assessment of that patient absolutely um, um within that context then you're looking at the patient for any signs of cardiorespiratory distress um so are they using their accessory muscles do they look cyanosed um do they look like they're tiring um do they have um um, any intercostal recession, any supersternal or supercovicular recession um, in terms of using their accessory muscles, um, and are they purse-lip breathing? Yeah. Okay. So again, it's about are they comfortable, or is there any signs that something potentially is going on nice and early? Sort of recognising that. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, if you have a patient who's clutching their chest and going grey and sweaty, we probably stop our history at that point and, and go on with our A to E assessment. Yeah, quite. Uh, but we're assuming we've got a nice, comfortable patient. Uh, so um, where are we going to start examining? 
Um, so starting with the hands mm -hmm. um, and um, looking for signs, or I should say stigmata of disease, um, of which there are many. Yeah, <laughs> there are many, so we're going to touch on a few um, and uh, give some examples of what might be seen um, and potentially underlying pathology relating to that um, and how that might uh, relate to sort of lifestyle choices, etc. Um, so, um, for instance, looking for things like clubbing. Um, yeah. quite a non-specific sign yeah, very say. common across all systems isn't it yeah <laughs> uh, common across all systems um, so clubbing um, and um, the loss of um, Stavros window um, and the angle of the nail bed um, uh, essentially you'd, you'd be looking for that first first off um, yeah. um, and looking for um, any signs of cyanosis pallor um, tar staining so evidence of smoking um, signs of carbon uh, dioxide retention um, or hypercapnia, um, so tremor, um, warmth to the hands, asterisks, um, or flap, um, signs of infective endocarditis, um, slightly less common um, when you're looking for signs <laughs> in the hands. But, um, so it's the one that people jump to as well, isn't the it? The ones that people jump to first, and yeah. so incredibly rare, but if you do find them, then probably worth a write-up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so things like, uh, when you're thinking of bacterial endocarditis, so things like splinter hemorrhages, Osler nodes and J-way lesion, lesions. Mm. Um, uh, with regards to splinter hemorrhages, I guess there needs to be an air of caution there because if somebody is whacked their nail over the weekend or Absolutely. they've been doing some heavy hard work, then you want to establish it's that and not, Absolutely. not the fact that they're, yeah. they're you know, growing things in their heart. And uh, for telling the difference between Janeway lesions and Osler's nodes, so the Janeway lesions are the flat, non-tender lesions, Absolutely. whereas Osler's nodes are raised and uh, tender. tender. So yeah. you can poke Jane, you can't poke Osler. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Probably don't say that in front of a patient, but you know, that's how I remember it. <laughs> uh, so uh, moving on then. So we, we've examined the hands. So examining the hands um, and then moving on to palpate the pulse, um, for which, I mean, there are several things you need to take into context. It's not just about counting the rate. Um, so thinking about the rhythm um, um, and character um, and volume of the pulse. Um, so is it thready? Um, does it feel regular? Does it feel like you've got a collapsing pulse, um, for instance? Um, all alongside, obviously, thinking about your rate, which is probably the most obvious one that people would go for. Um, uh, I think also thinking about things if it's bounding, so thinking about sort of hypercapnia um, yeah. or thinking about sepsis um, for, or early sepsis, I should say, um, for reasons of why that could be happening with this particular patient in front of you. Um, once you've taken the pulse, um, uh, I would say, and I do tend to do this actually, if I had a patient in front of me who presents with chest pain or a cardiovascular cause um, for the, the presentation today, um, but the presenting complaint, um, then I do tend to do, out of habit, maybe more than, some, than, than anything else, but I always do a radial, radial on mm -hmm. these patients. Um, and if, I, if I'm suspicious that there is a radial, radial delay, then I will do a radial femoral yeah. um, pulse as well. Um, before then moving on to have a look at the arms themselves. So um, I think in particular, when, when we think about sort of looking at somebody's arms, you're thinking about risks for cardiovascular disease, so things like IVDU, um, so signs of IVDU. Um, I myself would also look for um, any signs of recent admissions or recent blood tests to show yeah. that the patient had been seen by somebody else prior to mm -hmm. me and why those blood tests were taken um, is something else I always, also tend to look for. Um, and also um, looking for rashes. So any forms of rashes coming up the arms um, as well. AV fistula. 
specialist. Got a dialysis patient. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, which actually, again, they don't often tell you about. No. Um, and you come a cropper when you say, well, what's this on your arm? <laughs> um, and then they suddenly, oh yeah, well, I have dialysis three times a week. So um, because it's become their norm and what's normal for the patient, sometimes they, they don't realise that actually that's something yeah. we need to know about. Um, in advance, but certainly that's something else we'd look for. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, um, uh, so as you're coming up, um, I would then have, um, uh, I would palpate the carotid pulse, uh, again commenting on rate, rhythm, character and volume um, before um, going on to um, assess the JVP, so jugular venous pressure. I think this is probably something that throws people when they first mm. learn how yeah, to yeah I don't think people enjoy it JVPs um, and um, generally makes people have a bit of a wobble but it is simple mm. when you know how okay um, so in terms of measuring the JVP I think the most important part is that you don't have a patient sat in a chair um, at the bedside um, they need to be um, at a 45 degree angle mm -hmm. um, laying down um, for you to elicit um, a, a correct measurement um, and um, have the patient uh, with the head rested back so they're, they're sort of in a relaxed recumbent position really turn the head to the left hand side um, so that you're displacing the sternocleidomastoid um, and able to visualize the JVP um, it's subtle it's a small waveform um, if it if it's there yeah <laughs> and I think this is a thing that throws people that they will stare and stare and stare and there's yeah. nothing there uh, there are ways that we can um, um, enhance um, the JVP so that it becomes more visible. So for instance, the hepatojugular reflex. Um, so um, we say hepatojugular, but actually you can press anywhere on the patient's abdomen. Um, and I think um, research is showing that it doesn't really, it's not specific to the area you have to press. So um, anywhere, I tend to go anywhere kind of on that left side out of habit more than anything probably. Um, so pressing gently, ensuring that the patient doesn't have any pain prior to pressing on their tummy um, and, um, and looking all the time to see the rays in JVP because we're essentially shunting uh, the venous blood up um, uh, and we should see that it goes back down as well. Um, if it is raised as well I think one of the things that throws people in terms of how to measure it and there's a few a few ways in terms of documenting whether you document that how many centimeters above the clavicle it is mm. on that particular patient yeah. um, or alternatively there are ways to measure from the sternal notch mm. um, up and across and you're measuring the perpendicular height from yeah. the sternal notch remembering that you need to add five centimeters to that if you're doing that method and add five centimeters to that if you're mm. doing that okay. method so I, I just look along the anterior margin of the sternocleidum like you that it, the sternocleidomastoid, like you said, you're looking for this flickering, and it, and it is an odd sensation. It is an odd appearance. Mm. Um, remembering that, um, unlike the carotid pulse or any arterial pulse, you can a occlude it, and b, if you put your finger on there, you don't actually feel a pulse because you, you can get thrown by going. I, I'm feeling the carotid pulse. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's the base of it, really. I don't think there's anything else to add to JVP. Excellent, JVP done. JVP done. So then on to? Moving on to the eyes um, and mouth for signs of um, relevant cardiovascular disease. So um, our, in terms of looking for things like subconjunctival pallor um, or paleness um, as a sign of anemia, um, corneal arcus, so signs of hypercholesterolemia, um, xanthal asthma, signs of hyperlipidemia, um, jaundice, signs of liver disease. Yep. Um, moving on to the mouth, um, so chemosis of the tongue um, looks a little bit like 
almost like cuts into the side of the tongue really um, and potentially down the centre of the tongue as well um, so a very jagged looking tongue doesn't look healthy essentially um, uh, also at that stage asking the patient to lift the tongue is the most efficient way in terms of looking for central cyanosis um, and evaluating for any signs of dental caries which could put you at risk of things like endocarditis yeah um, cool. And from there, moving on to um, palpate the tree here for deviation. Um, now, this is something you, you've always got to warn the patient about because actually it's not the most comfortable thing to have no. done. Um, so warning them that this might be slightly uncomfortable. I tend to use um, my middle finger to palpate the trachea itself and then use the, um, the fingers either side just to anchor myself on the ends of the clavicle to yeah. give myself a base because then I can see whether it's moving to the left or to the right or if it's indeed central, which mm. most of the time it is. Yes. <laughs> um, um, uh, and finally, as part of my hands, neck and face exam, I would palpate the um, uh, lymph nodes. So um, my anterior cervical, posterior cervical, moving to pre-auricular, post-auricular, submandibular, moving round to the submental. I think remembering that if you are palpating, it's not a light tickling you have to palpate firmly yeah. and precisely mm. um, over over the nodes to be able to see if they are enlarged mm. um, and also in terms of commenting on things like if they're enlarged the texture of them mm. if they're malleable if you can move them around if they're tender for the patient um, because these are all important things you're going to need to put in within your notes for that patient yeah. um, um, and after this stage, um, we would then move on to inspection of the thorax. So now um, we're finally at the chest. <laughs> ah, after all that, there's so many other signs to pick up before. So finally at the chest, so inspection of the thorax, um, looking quite quite accurately getting the patient to lift their arms. So you're looking into the axillas as well, looking for any signs of previous chest strain, any scars, any yeah. bruising, swellings, any recessions within the, um, the rib cage any use of accessory muscles again um, which we really established at the beginning um, um, particularly paying attention to the left anterior chest wall so any signs of any devices that may have been inserted as well um, such as a pacemaker or an ICD absolutely um, palpating the chest wall for any tenderness, tenderness massive um, and then palpating um, the uh, heart valves so feeling over each of the valves aortic pulmonary um, tricuspid and mitral um, uh, feeling for any thrills as we'd say over the, over the uh, heart valves or um, uh, heaves over the right sternal border um, so signs of right right heart strain heart um, failure um, and a thrill is a uh, is a palpable murmur a palpable murmur essentially yeah yeah um, and then, um, so we've we've had a good feel round. So now we need to um, chest for not feel. palpate, not feel. We're not feeling. We are palpating. So um, having palpated, what's our next step? So assessing for chest expansion. So equal chest expansion. And I guess this is something that can really throw people when I've seen them in either learning environments or even in examination settings mm. um, is just ensuring that before you do chest expansion, you're getting the patient to take a big breath in and breathe out, and then you actually hold their chest and get them to take a breath in. So you can actually see that there's bilateral chest expansion. Your hands are actually moving yeah. with that. I think yeah. it should be an up and out, as we know with breathing, up and out <laughs> movement um, from both sides. Um, it's essential just to get the, them to take a breath in, a breath out before you start, and then get them to take a big breath in again. Um, it's the key points there. Um, and then percussing, ah, percussion. Uh, percussion of the patient's <laughs> chest. It takes practice, doesn't it, JT? It does, yeah. Um, <laughs> 
lots of practice and I find that the, the the more tense that your hand is on the patient the more uh, the the louder your percussion will be because if you've got a loose drum skin you're not going to get anywhere so it is all about being as tense as possible mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah like you said practice 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 so um Essentially, I would uh, uh, I percuss somebody's chest by by again same same the same as you really reiterating it is that I think it's firmness of how you press, not how hard you hit. <laughs> um, so it's not about how hard you're hitting your finger on your hand; it's how firm you're pressing on yeah. the patient's chest. Um, and I would advocate that you try and put your hands between the ribs if possible. Your fingers should sit between the ribs mm-hmm. as you're percussing to be able to elicit that note. Yeah. Um, the biggest point as well is that you should be lifting the finger away so you're not dulling the notes mm. as you're percussing. So the finger should be off the chest every at the end of every percussion to allow that, that note yeah. to be either resonant, dull, hyper-resonant, um, whatever it turns out to be. Um, I would just say practice, practice, practice. Practice on the cat, practice on your relatives, practice on the table, <laughs> uh, practice on everything um, is the only way to perfect percussion, really. Absolutely. Um, so after we've percussed, um, uh, we should move on to oscillate because it makes sense that we yeah. would percuss and then... Get um, Stethoscope out. Get the stethoscope out and have a listen. So using the stethoscope to um, auscultate, have the patient sat at preferably 45 degrees and asking them to take um, breaths in, steady breaths in and out through the mouth. Um, I would uh, use a diaphragm to listen to the right and left sides um, moving down the chest. So always like for like listening at the top on the left, listen to the top on the right and then moving down the chest, always comparing side to side. Yeah. Um, so not to miss any anything. So you should be comparing right to left all the all the while. Um, I would say I've heard patients um, people say to patients that they should take deep breaths in. I think there's a slight caution there because anybody who takes a really deep breath in does open those end air spaces more, and you can get false crackles. Yeah. And I'd I'd be wary of getting them to take huge, massive deep breaths in that they wouldn't ordinarily do. So um, just steady breaths is what I tend to say to my patients um, overall. Um, after listening to the lungs, um, it makes sense, and then we move on to listen to our heart sounds. Absolutely. So we've already palpated for our heart sounds uh, over the same areas we are then going to listen. Now I tend to start by listening um, for the apex beat um, for which you have to palpate again just to ensure you're over the right um, uh, landmark for it. Um, so auscultating using the diaphragm initially um, um, over the midclavicular fifth line um, intercostal space uh, with the diaphragm. Um, asking the patient to do take the right breath in so the key to heart sounds is knowing when they take a breath in when they hold a breath and when they when they breathe out yeah um so starting with the mitral valve asking the patient to take a breath in uh, breathe out and then hold their breath out listening with the diaphragm okay tell them to breathe again (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) remind them that they can then breathe again Um, and then turning the patient onto the uh, left side um, and listening with the bell of the diaphragm because it picks up a higher pitch um, to see if there's any sounds about mitral stenosis over the same point Um, and all the while checking the patient's pulse while you're doing this so that you can coincide your lub and your dub with your what you're palpating yeah yeah because um, if you do find a murmur, you want to say where it is in the, in the cycle. Very much so. Um, so then I'd move on uh, with the patient back at a 45 degree angle, listening over the left lower sternal edge, using the diaphragm again um, to uh, hear the tricuspid valve. Mm-hmm. Again, palpating, listening for my love and my dub. If I'm hearing a murmur, then I'm describing where that is within the cycle. Um, 
moving up to the second intercostal space on the left hand side again using the diaphragm this is to um, pal um, this is to auscultate the pulmonary valve um, at this stage i'll ask the patient to take a breath in and hold their breath in um, checking the patient's pulse throughout uh, and get them to breathe again <laughs> and breathe normally and breathe normally and then finally listening over the um, aortic valve um, so this is the right second intercostal space um, again using the diaphragm i'd ask the patient to take a breath in and out and hold their breath um, checking the patient's pulse throughout um, at this stage we while listening at the second intercostal space you're you're thinking about things like sternal and um, aortic stenosis sorry yeah um so aortic stenosis um at this stage you'd want to also rule out aortic incompetence and yeah. to do that you have to sit the patient up and lean them forwards um place the diaphragm over the left third intercostal space so slightly lower than if you're listening for pulmonary so slightly um, slightly forward leaning them forward second uh, third intercostal space asking the patient to take a, a deep breath out and hold their breath out um, and checking the patient's pulse throughout and if you hear yeah. hear a murmur then you're obviously understanding where it is in the lub dub and how you describe that within your notes Brilliant. So that's how and I then get them to breathe again. <laughs> and breathe again. <laughs> um, and while they're set forward, it makes sense at that point that you would then go around to do your examination at the back of the thorax. Yeah. Um, and working through sort of inspection, um, palpation, um, within your palpation, doing your chest expansion, then your percussion, then your auscultation. Mm. Um, I would at that stage tend to have a feel of the lower back to see if there's any signs of sacral edema yep. while they're sat forward before sitting them back and making them comfortable again and indeed covering them over. Absolutely. Um, at that stage we can then move on to check the lower legs. Um, I always ask the patient if they've got tendons to their legs because actually lots of people do and jumping in and touching them would make them very unhappy. So checking for the um, any tenderness, any discoloration, any edema um, and palpating. If you do see edema, palpating up to, to understand where that edema stops. Um, so is it below the knees bilaterally? Is it one side that's swollen? Is it both legs up to the thighs? Um, and making that clear mm. as well. See. And um, then you, we I've can... seen patients with edema that goes all the way up to their uh, belly button. It was that bad. So yeah, yeah it's just going all the way up. Yeah. Um, I think that just points out the key, um, the key point of making sure your patient is undressed if you're assessing them, yeah, really. Absolutely. Um, so you don't miss that. Um, Great. Fabulous. So that kind of rounds up our cardio-respiratory system examination. Brilliant. Excellent. Anything else, Lucy? Nothing else to add there. Marvellous. Thank you so much once again, Lucy. You're Thank welcome. you. Bye-bye, everyone. That was the Take Orally Cardio-Respiratory Examination podcast. You can find the blog entry for this podcast at takeorally.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to Take Orally on both uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. You can find Take Orally on both Twitter and Facebook. For more information about research and education opportunities with emergency mental acute mental major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.